Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at fuelrewards.com. That stunned right now while I said good day. Oh my god, an enthusiastic good day from the Murder on the Land of Oz girls. What? We're right? feeling stunning on this. Lovely. I mean, I'm feeling stunning. I don't know if Ellen's feeling stunning, but I am feeling so bloody stunning. Stunning, 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 stunning. There's am some- I overcompensating for some emotions that are going on that we'll tell you about a little bit later on? Yes. Yes, definitely. Emotions are high here in the Oz studio. Yep, very much so. Um, we'll talk about that later because we need to get through the murder. Yes. So um, if you're sensing <clears throat> any like frenetic energy between the two of us, yeah. it's there and there's you a reason. Cut it with a knife. Um, so Literally. to start off with, um, we are a true crime podcast. What? <laughs> What? We're an Australian true crime podcast. If that is not your jam, go away. Um, thank you all so much to the lovely people that have been leaving reviews. Yes, especially we've had so many reviews. So many nice ones. Um, Greta from Instagram left us a lovely review. Thank you, Greta. we had an interesting review come up this week and I do want to address it. Oh, no. Um, no, no, about the housekeeping thing. Yeah. People, okay, so somebody was like, hey, you're a copycat of my favourite murder and I – Love My Favourite Murder. So thank you for the uh, compliment. See, I'm not a huge fan of My Favourite Murder, so... But you do think they're funny. They are funny. Yeah. They're not great at knowing facts. Correct. Um, I really like that podcast and it brings me a lot of joy. So thank you so much. I think her name was Amanda. Um, but she brought up this thing of being like... Of us saying housekeeping is somehow us copying My Favourite Murder. And Ellen so rightfully said that that is a, just a general saying. So... No, I don't take it. I envision Amanda like in a hotel somewhere and like they knock on the door and they're like housekeeping. They're like, oh, way to rip off my my favorite favorite murder. murder. Right. Anyway, so that's number one. Number two, have you sponsored us on Patreon yet? Probably not. Probably should. But you should because we've got some patron only content coming very, very soon. It's coming very soon. It's fantastic. Stunning. Going to be Stunsville. Stunsville, indeed. Um, so you can do that. Uh, you can find that in the show notes. Um, what else? Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. We're getting so many lovely messages on the Instagram. Yes. And I'm responding to everybody and they're all super sweet and super nice. Yes. But yeah. So now we're on second episode of Victorian season. We are. Very exciting. Very exciting. Stunning. Um, so Ellen's got the reins on this one. Also, thank you so much for the feedback on Jill Ma. Oh, yeah, it was a great episode. Everybody's like, everybody messaging, being like, I'm currently crying on the train. We're like, yeah, mood sis. Also, we have to talk about lovely lady that sent that picture through of Hilarious Sydney. Hilarious meme of Sydney. Thank Bloody you. stunning. Stunning. Stunsville. Look, so good. So what has really been amazing about this podcast is the community of people that have come out to just tell us how much they fucking hate Sydney. Yes. And I really love that. I live that there are hundreds of us in our heads for I thought so I was long. the only one I thought I was the only one that really hated Sydney and everybody who lives there there's but lots no, of us turns out it's there's a big community there's a big community we'll we can support each other through anything that occurs stunning in 
the shit town of Sydney. So I'm going to turn off my erratic behavior because I feel like I'm starting to lose my mind. So Ellen's going to take the reins on this I'm one. I'm take the reins. So Ellen, who are we talking about? We are talking about a man by the name of John Sharp today. You may know him from his uh, nickname, The Mornington Monster. Yikes, this isn't going to be a fun time. No, before we dive in to this episode, I would like to say that this episode is very gruesome. Um, And it also involves crimes against children. So if that's not your bag, please turn this podcast off. As we've said, though, when we've been talking about this podcast, we try and avoid crimes against children. We try. We try. But Bowerville was important. Also, mm-hmm. ran into Joel today, who told me about the Bowerville. Shout out to Joel. I think Th- we forgot his jo- name in the episode, but shout out to I Joel. I definitely did. Um, but yes, so he was like, "Oh my gosh, you did Bowerville." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we did." Ellen Thanks, was Joel. awesome. Um, okay, great. So the Mornington Monster. Yeah, right. I'm going to adjust my microphone and I'm going to sit with my head in my hands. Great. That's a. I think everybody else is listening to this in the exact same position. So stunning. Alrighty. So John Miles Sharp was born on the twenty eighth of February, nineteen sixty seven, in Mornington, which is a lovely little suburb in Victoria's Mornington Peninsula, which is located around fifty kilometers southeast of Melbourne. He was one of six children, and his parents were Valerie and Miles Sharp. Um. Side note: I hate the name Miles. 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 I'm trying to think if I know anyone called Miles. I don't think I know anyone called Miles, but anytime somebody is like named Miles, I'm like, ugh, of course. Like Miles always, if you, your name is Miles, ugh, of course. <laughs> Righto. Yep. Anyway, so John Miles Sharp, of course, was 27 years old and working at a branch of the Commonwealth Bank when he met Anna Kemp, a co-worker of his who was then 31 years old. Anna was born on the 27th of September, 1962. She was the middle child, the only girl in between two boys, which is a very she, rough. Oh, my God. It's you. It's me. It's me. Um, very rough way of growing up. Um, at school, she enjoyed sport and she was a very hard worker. She was uh, described as a vivacious and generous person with a bubbly personality, the kind of person who would give you the shirt off their back. John, on the other hand, was not very social. He didn't have very many friends. Um, and his neighbours commented on how they made he made them feel uneasy in his presence, how antisocial he was and how he wouldn't make conversation. One neighbour even said that he was somebody that I wouldn't leave my kids with. Oof. John was the kind of guy that I'm sure we all know somebody who is similar who just can't quite pick up on what he was supposed to do in a social situation. Like always just a little bit off. Um, But Anna and John began a romance working together at the Commonwealth Bank and they married quite quickly in October of 1994. Their marriage was not perfect. Not long after their honeymoon, Anna confessed to one of her brothers that she was worried that she had made a mistake marrying John. However, she stuck with the marriage and people commented that it was her Catholic upbringing that inspired her to persevere with the relationship. (laughs) Don't, yeah. Oi. Uh, Anna and John were quite a low-key couple. They didn't have a huge social circle, but they spent most of their time renovating houses so they would buy up old houses around Mornington and live in them while they renovated them and then sell them for a profit. Um, In August of 2002 Anna gave birth to a baby girl named Gracie. Gracie was born with hip dysplasia and she had to use a corrective harness for the first three months of her life and it was a very rough first few months so she wouldn't sleep at all at night she had difficulty feeding and she would cry a lot which is obviously something that all babies do but Gracie was a particularly difficult child, but all of Anna's friends and family said that Anna absolutely threw herself into taking care of Gracie. She was essentially like round the clock care for her, did everything that she had to do to, you know, get Gracie through the first few months of her life. Um, She took her to the Hillview maternity unit um, and had a few appointments there to help like kind of teach Anna some like strategies and stuff like that to help her cope with the stress and anxiety of, you know, raising a child who had, um, a birth abnormality, um, but Gracie was absolutely Anna's world and friends spoke about how it was evident that Anna would have done anything that she needed to do to care for that child. In September of 2003, Anna, John and Gracie moved into their new house on Prince Street in Mornington. Not long after that, Anna became pregnant with their second child. John was not stoked. About, he, about children in general or just haven't... This about the fact that she was pregnant. He wasn't uh, very happy because the pregnancy was unintentional, although I would like to use his specific wording. 
He was angry that Anna got pregnant without his permission. Fuck off, son. Busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Way Anna, too busy. When Anna went to an ultrasound in February of 2004, John was completely disinterested, didn't attend the appointment with her and didn't want to know like the gender of the child. How many so, months apart were they? The kids. Yeah. Uh, Gracie was born in 2002 and then um, Anna got pregnant again in September of 2003. So... Gracie was, I think, just under a year old when she got pregnant for the oh. second time. Um, so Anna, like, came back from the appointment all excited and was like, so do you want to know what happened at the ultrasound today? And he responded, well, you're going to tell me anyway, aren't you? Oh, I don't like him. Not really the reaction you're looking for. No. Um, anyway, she told John that the baby was going to be a boy. She was hurt by John's coldness and said to John, if you're going to be indifferent with this baby like you are with Gracie, then I'm going to leave you. Yes, bitch. Joanna. Um, according to Anna's mum, Lily, she said that John had never cuddled Gracie in her presence, like never like picked her up and cuddled her um, and never put his arms around Anna at any time. And she said that when he carried Gracie around, she, he carried her as if she was a log. Oh, no. Yeah, so this pregnancy um, brought a lot more stress into Anna and John's already quite stressful marriage. And her friends even commented that John had been starting to act quite rude towards Anna um, and raising her voice at her in public, something that they had never seen him do before. So we have this relationship between these two people. Anna is very strong and confident and strong-willed and social and a really, like, nice, well-loved woman. John, Bit I'm sure dick. he's got his fans, but, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he's got his fans. Not, not very good at dealing with issues, not really good at dealing with stresses in his life um not a lot of friends not a lot of a support circle yeah um not really able to deal with the fact that Gracie had a disability uh and not pleased that Anna had gotten pregnant again so that uh we're bringing us now to 21st of March 2004 Anna John and Gracie attended a birthday party for one of Gracie's cousins in a local park it was a normal family outing nobody said that anything was amiss um Gracie played happily with her cousins and her family reported that Anna and John seemed happy together on March 22nd, 2004, Anna called her mother for their weekly chat and nothing seemed to be wrong. She picked uh, she picked up and dropped off Gracie at childcare. She had a long chat with one of her best friends um, on the phone at around 8 o'clock at night. The friend said nothing seemed off with Anna. She seemed really cheery and she had made plans to meet up with another friend later in the week. On March 23rd, 2004, Anna rung her insurance company to organise coverage for her unborn child. This is the last time that Anna Kemp was heard from alive. So I'm going to rewind a little bit now from March of 2004 to an unknown period of time sometime before February of 2004. So at some point not known to anybody, John Sharp goes to this shop. It's called Sport Philip Marine. It's a shop that sells like fishing gear, stuff for your boat, stuff for like aqua sports and things like that. Yeah. John purchased with cash so it couldn't be traced a spear gun and spearhead. Oh, no. Oh, no. So he purchased this spear gun and spearhead, which is traditionally used for like underwater fishing, a hobby that John Sharp had never expressed an interest in. He took the spear gun home, deployed it once in his backyard as a test shot and kept it in their garage. So jumping back forward now to March 23rd, 2004, Anna and John had an argument before they went to bed sometime before 10 p.m. Anna fell asleep quite quickly, but John lay in bed brooding about all the problems in their marriage. At some point during the night, he got up, went to the garage and retrieved the spear gun. He loaded it with one of the spears, went back inside his and Anna's bedroom, knelt down next to her where she lay in the bed and fired the spear into her left temple. Anna didn't die immediately from the shot, so John took another spear and shot it into her head next to the first. This time, Anna's breathing stopped. John then covered Anna's body with towels so he didn't have to look at her and went downstairs to sleep on the felled out bed. The next morning, John got up and took Gracie to childcare, came home and then tried to remove the spears from Anna's body where it lay in their bed. He couldn't get the full spear out though, just the steel shafts. Um, a man came uh, sometime in the morning to repair their TV antenna and John had to lie to him to keep him out of the house where Anna's body was still lying in their bedroom. Jess is freaking out. <laughs> Um, so after the TV repairman left, uh, John took Anna's body out of the bedroom and buried it in a shallow grave that he had dug in their backyard. Later that afternoon, he went and picked Gracie up from childcare. 
So next day, March 25, 2004, John telephoned two of Anna's friends, um, which was highly out of character for him. Both of their friends said that they'd never, ever spoken to John on the phone before. He asked them if they had heard from Anna, that he couldn't get in contact with her, and that she had told John that she was leaving him for another man who she was pregnant to. Her friends were immediately suspicious. They were like, yeah, nah, not Anna. Um, He also rang Anna's mother, Lily, and gave the same story. And also added that Anna had said that she was going to come and pick up Gracie on the following Sunday. And her mother was like, yeah, nah, not Anna. They were like, there is no way on earth that Anna would leave Gracie alone for a week to run off with some guy that she'd never met. So she'd had like long conversations with her phone, with her friends on the phone a couple of days before. Never said anything about another man. Never said anything about being unhappy. So they were sus from essentially minute one. Um... So Anna's friends and family, yeah, they're suspicious, but they're not immediately thinking that he's done something. he's done something wrong. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of starting to create this story, starting to lay the framework for, you know, oh, she's run off with another man. Um, but over the course of the week, it becomes obvious to John that there is a big problem, and that is Gracie. The longer... <sighs> Time goes on without Anna having any contact with Gracie, the more suspicious her disappearance is going to seem. So John goes again to Sport Philip Marine with Gracie in tow and purchases another spear for his spear gun. When he picks Gracie up from childcare on March 26, he tells the employees that Anna has left him and that Gracie would no longer be attending childcare. The childcare workers were the last people to see Gracie alive as she walked off hand in hand with her father. On the evening of March 27th, John sharp down three glasses of whiskey and coke in order to numb his senses. Gracie was asleep in her cot. Sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., John once again retrieved the spear gun from the garage and went into Gracie's bedroom. He fired the spear gun. The spear penetrated her left skull, but Gracie woke up and began to scream. John then left the room, went downstairs and retrieved the two spear shafts he had taken from Anna's skull, loaded them into the gun and fired them into her head one after the other. Still, Gracie remained alive and screaming. John Sharp then pulled the first spear from his daughter's head, loaded it into the gun and fired again. This time, Gracie's screaming stopped. I don't usually like to get in such graphic detail with things like this, but I think it's kind of necessary in order to illustrate just how fucked beyond all reason this crime was. It's just fucked beyond all reason. So the next morning, March 28, John uh, puts a towel, holding a towel over his face so he doesn't have to look at Gracie's body, pulls the spears out of her head. He wraps her body up in garbage bags and then a tarp and binds it with duct tape. He then takes Gracie's body, the spears, the spear gun and some of Gracie's clothing and toys to the Mornington Refuse Refuse Transfer Station and throws them all out into the tip. On 29th of March, 2004, John walks to a Bunnings store in Frankston and purchased a roll of duct tape, two tarps and a chainsaw. He returns home and a couple of days later, he digs up Anna's body that he had buried in the backyard and dismembers it using the chainsaw. He then wraps her body up in the tarps and duct tapes them together and takes Anna's body and the chainsaw to the same location at the Mornington Refuge Transfer Station where he disposed of Gracie. Now, this like this is like the the tip where you put all your rubbish before it gets taken off to the big tip. So after, not long after he dumped Anna and Gracie's body there, they were removed and taken to the um, even larger landfill site at Turong. So Anna and Gracie now gone. John takes a page out of the Daniel Holden playbook and starts using Anna's phone and credit cards to create the false trail that she's still alive. He uh, started using Anna's bank cards at very various ATMs around the Chelsea area, which is the area that he had told Anna's mum and friends that she had run off with this mystery bloke. Um, Chelsea is 30 minutes north of Mornington. It's not like it's a far away location. Like people could have run into Anna like at the local Coles or whatever. Um but he's trying to create the image that she's now living in Chelsea. Um, she, he sent an email to Anna's brother in New Zealand kind of being like, hey, this is why I've been out of communication. I've started up this new life with this bloke. 
Um, but once again, Anna's mother and brother find the email incredibly suspicious. To them, it just didn't sound like Anna, like the wording and the tone was completely off for her and so was the content. They just didn't believe that Anna would have ever up and left her husband and child. So Anna's mother reported Anna missing in Dunedin, New Zealand, where she was from. So the Dunedin police um, got in contact with John and John was like, yeah, nah, mate, she's all right. She's off in Chelsea living with some bloke. I've spoken to her. I've seen her. She's come and picked up Gracie. She's come and picked up Gracie's stuff. Um, and he sent another email from Anna in quotation marks. And this kind of satisfied the police that nothing was going on. I feel like we need, if you don't talk to the person that is missing, you can't really say they're not a missing person. I have big issues with the fact that the police are apparently like satisfied that she was not missing after talking to her husband. Um, so on the 8th of May, Anna in quotation marks sent her mother Lily flowers for her birthday and mother's day. Um, and after being kind of satisfied, but not really that Anna wasn't missing when she received the flowers, Lily was like, yeah, no, something's wrong. So she gets in contact with constable John Woodhouse of the Dunedin police. She Anna was really, really close with her mother. They spoke basically every day and she was like, Anna would never send me one set of flowers for both Mother's Day and her birthday. Her birthday was in June, so a month later. And once again, the email that was sent along with it was just like not from Anna. She could tell that Anna hadn't written it. So it was John Woodhouse of the Dunedin Police who began investigating the case in earnest. Um, he went through all of Anna's emails to try and see if there was any emails between her and this mystery man. Um he talked to all of her friends back in Australia and heard their suspicions that, you know, Anna was acting out of character. Um, he also traced down a nurse at the hospital who told him that Anna had missed um, several essential prenatal appointments without any notice or explanation. Um, John Sharp had initially told the police that uh, Anna had collected Gracie from the Sharp residence and left by taxi. So John Woodhouse contacted every taxi company that operated in the Mornington area and none of them had any records of a collection from their address in that time period. So armed with all this information, John Woodhouse, uh, he's convinced that John Sharp is involved in the disappearances and he creates a file containing all the evidence which he'd uncovered and gave it to the Victoria Police on the 20th of May 2004. The police, the Victoria Police upon receiving this file were like, yeah, nah, something's up. Um, so they go on that exact same day, they go to Sharp's house in Mornington and start questioning him about his wife's disappearance. And John sticks with the sub story. He's like, oh, my wife left, left me, took the daughter, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he says that he's seen Anna a number of times in the preceding months as she'd come back and forth to collect her and Gracie's things. Um, by this point, John had thrown out a large portion of Anna's belonging and some more of Gracie's in order to make this story ring more true. At this, day, at this time, he made a sworn, sworn statement to police stating that he had had no involvement in Anna or Gracie's disappearance, but the police were still suspicious. So they began surveying John and it didn't take very long for their suspicions to be confirmed. One day, police surveying John witnessed him take a credit card out of a plastic rubbish bag that was stashed in some, bush, in some bushes outside a toilet block in Mornington. When John left and they went to investigate the area, they found that the plastic bag contained Anna's phone, her visa card and her license. Oh, what a fucking twit. I know. Like that's honestly just stupid. That's just dumb. That's just <sighs> ridiculous. So by this point, um, Anna and Gracie have been missing for a couple of months and this case is starting to get a little bit of media attention. And one day late in May, John was approached by news media in the car park of a supermarket and asked, like, you know, what's going on with your wife and child? Like, what do you think's going on? You can watch the video of him talking about this online. It's in a documentary that is called Crocodile Tears, which is about oh, murderers stunning. who make pleas to the public about wanting their, you know, loved ones to return. Um, this This filmed interview was, like, the nail in the coffin for, like, the Australian public because he – said he was just so unbelievable he was just so unbelievable and he was like like I want Anna and Gracie to come home he said Anna our marriage may be over but I still love you and you were the mother of our beautiful daughter Gracie whom we both adore more than anyone else um and every single person in Australia was like yeah nah like I'm calling bullshit on that he was just so unbelievable um so public opinion about him like everybody was basically saying yeah he's done it he's killed them 
Um, so his parents, Valerie and Miles, invited the Herald Sun into the family home to do a piece to clear John's name, essentially. Um, during the interview, Valerie, John's mother, did the majority of the talking while John walked from room to room, occasionally speaking and answering questions and like glancing out of the blinds into the street outside as if Anna was just going to suddenly stroll on up the driveway. Um, John's behavior was so off-putting during the interview that Ian Curring, the photographer, said that at one point John walked into the kitchen while he was still speaking and Ian thought that bastard is going to come back out with a knife or something. This interview did little to fix John's reputation. To the Australian public, John did not come across as a man who wished for his wife and daughter to return. He was just not capable of convincingly faking empathy or sadness. So by this point, the net is really starting to close in. On June 10th, he was interviewed by police for a second time. He maintained his story about Anna leaving him for another man. But by now, the police had found Anna's card, phone and license. They'd surveyed John. They'd seen him taking money out of ATMs using Anna's cards. They tapped his phone. Um, the circumstantial evidence was pointing to John and only John as the killer. But without a body or DNA evidence, they needed a confession from John to really nail him. So on the 22nd of June, 2004, John was arrested and taken to the Homicide Squad headquarters. He was interviewed twice. The first interview, he held on to his made-up story. Towards the end of the interview, police presented John with some evidence that I will get into later and basically said like, you sure you want to stick to your story, mate? Police allowed him to speak with his family and then after that, he was interviewed a second time where he confessed. His justification for his crime was that Anna was moody and controlling and that she had come between him and his family, preventing him from seeing them as often as he would have liked. He was unhappy in the marriage and unhappy that she had fallen pregnant again. He told police the full story of how he committed the murders in graphic detail and police were shocked. One of the investigators, Shane Brundell, said essentially that he had never heard anything so grotesque in a confession before. Same. Um, and then John was held in police custody. So almost immediately after his confession, the police began searching around the Sharp residence for evidence and for the bodies of Anna and Gracie. Um, police cadaver dogs were used. Um, they took a bunch of evidence from the house, including clothing and things like that, and paving stones from a recently paved area in the backyard. Uh, I don't have any evidence for this, but I assume he put paving stones over the area where, where Anna's body had been grave. to kind of make it seem to cover up all the disturbed earth. Uh, from the house, they then moved on to the tip where Anna and Gracie's bodies had been disposed. It took three weeks to search the landfill with hundreds of police volunteers searching in hazard gear in freezing cold and rainy weather. This is the middle of June in Melbourne. So it would have been fucking cold and rainy, like the worst conditions to possibly be searching through a rubbish tip. But the police were so dedicated to the search that they said that they would come in on their days off just so they could keep the search going. Um, they used bobcats, shovels, rakes and all manner of other tools and searched an area of around 2,500 square metres. So on July 6, 2004, after sifting through literal tonnes of garbage, police finally found human remains that they believed to be Anna Kemp's. Um, later at Anna and Gracie's funeral, which was a, a month or so later, the priest giving the service stated that, the day Miss Kemp's body was found was a miserable overcast day, but suddenly the clouds opened and the search area was flooded with light and there was Anna, which made me cry when I read it. Yeah. Um, the search continued for a number of days after Anna was found to try and locate Gracie and it wasn't until the very last day of the search, like they're literally like starting to pack up and like shut the whole thing down because they haven't found anything of her. She was found at the very, very last day. So her body was found along with other items, including a spearhead, clothing and a photo of the family, which literally if that was on like a TV show and they were searching and then they found like a photo of the family together with the body, you would be like, that's dramatic. But they literally found a photo with her remains. Uh, a memorial service was held in Victoria um, before they were laid to rest in Dunedin, New Zealand. Anna was 41 years old when she died and she was five months pregnant with her second child, a boy who would have been named Francis. Gracie was 19 months old. So thankfully, in light of all of this evidence and the fact that he confessed, John Sharp didn't put the families through the ordeal of a trial. On February 5th, 2005, he pled guilty to the murders of Anna and Gracie. He was sentenced to two life sentences with a non-parole period of 33 years. He will be eligible for parole in 2037. 
I'm so sorry you put yourself through that. That was a lot. Um, I really wanted to talk about the psychological evaluation that was done as part of um, John's sentencing. Um, as I have mentioned a couple of times in this episode, lots of people that knew John were like, everybody thought that he was pretty weird. Um, and I am not the kind of person that's like, that guy acts weird, so he's probably a murderer. Like you and I have had the argument a thousand times about Burke Ramsey and how the oh, fact yeah. that he acts weird doesn't mean that he's a murderer. Um, but I do think that you can tell um, if you go and watch the video of John Sharp when he's talk- like pleading for Anna and Gracie to return, you can just tell. You can just tell that there is just something not quite right there. So um, the judge, the sentencing judge, judge's name was Judge Buongiorno, which is a fantastic name. <laughs> That was a bit of light that we just needed. Just a bit of light, just to lighten up Judge the day. The judge's name was Judge Buongiorno. Buongiorno, love it. Um, so he talked a lot in his sentencing about John's psychological state and the impact that that had on the sentencing. So the forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Lester Walton, who examined John Sharp, found him to be socially inept, dependent, passive, and a retiring individual. Sharp also visited a psychologist while his wife was missing for treatment for insomnia and mild depression. And this psychologist found Sharp to be an inadequate, isolated and withdrawn individual. This uh, psychologist, Dr. Joblin, found that John Sharp didn't have appropriate social skills and he had few friends. He was overly dependent on his parents and was not equipped with the psychological resources to handle the problems and stresses in his life and marriage. John had told... John had told Dr. Joblin after she went missing in sarcastic quotation marks that Anna was killing him. And Dr. Joblin took this to mean that Anna and their relationship was taking a psychological toll on John and or possibly making him so depressed as to become suicidal, which I think is quite rich from somebody who has just murdered his wife and child. Um, so I read a book for researching this episode which was called why did they do it which is um essentially like psychologically analyzing some of australia's most famous murderers and serial killers and stuff and the authors of that book they never got to like view john or do any actual evaluation of their own but they diagnosed him with avoidant personality avoidant personality disorder um Although I think it's important to note that no psychologist or psychiatrist or anything has diagnosed with John anything like this. But uh, people with AVPT are unable to cope with instability and problems in life. They can't handle criticism and feel hurt and angry at the slightest judgments and are obsessed with their own perceived shortcomings. They have a desperate need for people to like and accept them, but they believe that other people think of them as uninteresting, unappealing and inferior. They have poor social skills and are afraid of social situations and they fear embarrassing themselves, but they keep these feelings and fears well hidden. People like John Sharp resent being dependent on their partners, but are also incapable of running their own lives. So John sought Anna out as somebody who had what he lacked. She was a strong, confident and sociable partner that he could hide behind, but he grew to resent her when she wanted to do things on her own terms or do things that he disagreed with. For example, getting pregnant without his permission. Sharp, in his own words, viewed Anna as a dictator who was dominant and controlling purely because she acted with her own agency and moved outside of the script that John had created for himself. By getting pregnant again, Anna was forcing additional responsibilities on John that he was unable to handle and therefore the only response in his mind was to eliminate her. As for Gracie, she was one of the responsibilities that John was unable to handle and although he may have loved her, he was not able in his own mind to care for her. She was also the biggest threat to him getting away with Anna's murder. He told the forensic psychologist that he felt threatened by Gracie, a statement that Judge Bongiorno said was objectively absurd. So the psychological assessment was not conducted in order to excuse John Sharp's criminal behaviour, but ultimately to see whether or not he could be held responsible for his actions. The psychologist and Judge Bongiorno found that despite these personality failures, John Sharp was in his right mind when he committed these crimes against his wife and daughter. Dr. Joblin stated in his evidence that Sharp was not suffering from any abnormality other than the fact that anyone who did what he did must be considered abnormal. He also stated that while Sharp seemed to understand what he had done, he was unable to discuss the issue of remorse. Obviously, I'm not a psychologist, but in all my reading about this case and learning about John Sharp, I don't really know that somebody like him is capable of remorse. I think firstly that he is somebody that has very low empathy. And secondly, I think that in his skewed mind, 
he took the only option that he believed was available to him in killing Anna and Gracie. I think that in his mind, he was trapped and felt that there was only one way out. Whereas any rational person would know that all of this could have been avoided if John Sharp was capable of having a difficult conversation with his wife. I don't think that he can feel remorseful if in his mind he did what he had to do. I just saw so, a photo of this guy. I looked him up on my phone. And you can man, tell, right? You can tell. I don't want to say anybody looks like a killer, but mm-hmm. this fucking guy definitely You does. can't look like a killer, but if you could look like a killer, You'd this look guy like would John look Sharp. like that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Now, I mentioned before um, about some evidence that police- Yes, lay it on me. You've put me in so much suspense. Yes, I put you in suspense on purpose because this evidence is kind of janky. So- Allegedly, when he was a teenager, John Sharp sexually assaulted a young female relative over a period of two years. This family member went to the police with this information after Anna and Gracie went missing. And apparently, this is the information they used to compel him to confess. Um, His parents- Whoa! Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. So- I will state right out the gate, the only source for this information is one Herald Sun article from around the time. Um, So some family members of John Sharp came out after the fact and said that they believed that a possible motive for Anna and Gracie's murder was that Anna had caught John molesting Gracie, which I don't necessarily believe because of the fact that he had been planning to murder his wife and been fantasizing about murdering his wife since at least two months before it happened. Yeah. When he went and bought the spear gun, um, he told police that he had been thinking about it for some time. It wasn't like a spur of the moment. Like, no, it was premeditated. It was, it pre- was-, it was premeditated. Um, and I also think that like if you were to make a counter argument that like maybe Anna caught him and then he started to plan the murder after that, I don't think that there is any way that Anna being like the devoted mother she was. No, she wouldn't have stayed. She wouldn't have left Gracie in the house Definitely alone with him not. for a nanosecond. So I don't disbelieve what this family member stated. I don't not believe that it's true. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that this has never been brought up in any kind of court and it's never been proven. Um, but I don't necessarily think that it's a motive for the crime. And I'm also not going to sit here and be like, John Sharp is also a pedophile, but that is allegedly the information that forced him to confess. So he spoke to his family members afterwards, after that, um, information was brought to him. And apparently that's when his family members found out about that information. Fucking hell. Effing hell. Um, So when I started researching this case, the similarities to another American case, the Chris Watts case, I think came up straight away. Do you, have you read anything about the Chris? Well, it's, it's very similar apart from the fact that Chris Watts was like a charming guy and not weird, but same, same kind of MO. Uh, Chris, Chris Watts did have like a mistress and he murdered his wife and two children and did similar things to John Sharp, like tried to cover it up, um, made a lot of pleas in the media, asking for them to come home. Um, I mean, the because I guess we'd call John Sharp a family annihilator. Well, I yes, I think you would. He doesn't really fit um, a lot of the there's a there's like five certain subtypes of the family annihilator. John Sharp, I don't think really fits into any of those like psychological profiles, but. I think that's more to do with his underlying social personality disorder. If you believe that he does have a personality disorder. Right. Um, Chris Watts, definitely you would consider a family annihilator. Cause the, the famous annihilator family annihilator story I know was the guy that, you know, killed the four members of his family and then went into hiding and then was found through an FBI most wanted. Oh, yeah. He had started this entire new life. Was that John List? Yes. Yeah, that's it. John yeah. List. Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody today about the episode we were, we were recording. I was like, Ellen's picked it. As far as I know, it's like a family annihilator yeah. sort of case because we've talked about the effects of toxic masculinity on women, but we mm-hmm. haven't really talked about the effects of toxic, toxic masculinity on men. On men, yeah. And just, I mean, it's so prevalent in a lot of the times of husbands killing wives or husbands killing kids or, you know, wives 
you know, killing kids and stuff like that, but mm. like the effects of like a trauma in a relationship and then instead of divorcing yeah. their partners, they, they're like, well, well, the only way out of this is just so I can, I'll kill them. Exactly. And I'll kill the kids too. Yeah. And there are all these, when I was reading about family annihilators, there are all these different, you know, different motivations and stuff like that. Like, for example, you know, uh, if a man is like the the breadwinner of the family and he loses and his job, loses his job, well, he can't provide for his fam- family, therefore they're better off dead. So he'll kill them. Or, you know, if there's a divorce or a, a marriage breakdown or something like that, well, if I can't have her, no one can have her. Kill the kids and the children. Like, it's... It's, and I'm not going to pretend like this is some like incredibly common, like happens every nanosecond kind of thing, but it's crazy how many stresses in a relationship or somebody's life, you know, impacts these people. And then their response is better kill my wife and child, you know, out of the way, get them out of the way. The psychology behind it is just absolutely insane. Something that I also thought was very similar with this case in the Chris Watts case was the media coverage. Like when you Google this case and the Chris Watts case, you can read article after article after article after article about John Sharp and Chris Watts and why they did what they did and like saucy titles and stuff like that. But, you know, when I was when I was researching the Chris Watts case, I, I couldn't remember what the names of his kids were. So I went to research it and I read four articles about and it was quite recently, it was when he was moved, um, when he moved prisons into Wisconsin. So, you know, one of the most, not when you guys are listening to this, but it like re- just happened. Mm. So recent articles that didn't actually mention the names of his children. Ugh. They mentioned, like he said, they killed Shannon and his two daughters. Shannon was his wife. His two daughters' names were Celeste and Bella for the record. But the fact that I had to like investigate to find out what the two names of his children were but you can read all about him you can read his sexy text messages with his mistress you know you can read all the article the information that he gave about you know john sharp's psychological profile and all these things like that you know it it it's i mean the fact of the matter is is that anna and gracie are dead so we can't learn any more information about them you know what i mean but in these kinds of cases when a man kills his wife or kills his family like Jared Baden-Clay and like so many other people like that, the information, you can learn anything you want to learn. Learn anything about Tony McHugh and learn about. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I don't like the fact that, you know, the, the humanness of their victims are completely washed up in the story about salacious the murderer. Salacious detail. The salacious like, detail about their murderer. Shit. Like it almost feels like, you know, he already killed them. Yeah. What more he's can he already, do? He's already, <laughs> it's honestly the most horrible, like the most horrific thing I've ever heard in my yeah. entire life. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible case. Um, When I was reading it, I was like, maybe we shouldn't cover it. But then I thought, no, maybe we should, because we do have a, we do have an opportunity here to talk about the victims and, you know, everything that I read about Anna, you know, the limited information that there is about her in comparison to John Everything that I read about her was just like she was the most dedicated mother. Like she became a mother later on in her life, but she was so dedicated to that child and would do anything to take care of her, you know, to sacrifice everything so that she could have. Also, just kind of what pisses me off is him being like, oh, well, she left me. She did this to me. Pity me. She did. It's like you did this. You did this. And even when he was when he was caught by the media saying like, oh, Anna, I know our marriage is over, but I still love you. Like throwing it back on her, you know, in this fantasy world that he'd created where- You've already, you've already murdered your wife. You've already murdered her. Why sully her name and her reputation? Exactly. Just because you want to get away with it. Exactly. Fucking idiot. But clearly it didn't work because all of her friends no. and family were like, yeah, no, nah, not yeah, Anna. Nah, sorry. Not a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. I just think he's a really terrible person and I hope that in 2037 when he's up for parole, the judge goes, oh, you're the guy that murdered your wife and child with a spear Spear gun? gun. Another 33 years for you, you prick. What? Also, like there's no good way to kill anybody. I'm not saying there is, but like a fucking spear spear gun? gun? You fucking psychopath. It's just grotesque. It's disgusting. 
disgusting. It's disgusting. It's like a 15-year-old boy's like gross fantasy about killing somebody or something. It's so I hate it's not juvenile, but it feels juvenile. It does feel juvenile. You're right. It's like a hunting weapon. It's, it's just there's ugh. something really disgusting she about was it. Lying in bed asleep, pregnant with your child, because guess what? Takes two to tango. It does take two to tango. And just because he was such like a spineless person that couldn't <sighs> couldn't handle anything, he couldn't he could not talk to Anna. He could not be an adult about it because he, you know, he was just not capable of dealing with the problems in his life. And, you know, I have a limited amount of sympathy for him because clearly, you know, there is something wrong there. But you don't murder your wife and child. No. God, you're not happy. Just trust me, coming from a child of divorce, it's better to grow up with it's better to grow up with happy parents separated than two parents that fucking hate each other. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So that was That's the murder. The Sharp Family Murders. Yes. The Sharp Family Murders. I do. Um, well, just to bring the tone down even more. I don't really think that we can talk about this news as bringing the tone down no, no, no. from a um, violent but we're not gonna murder. Cheer you, I'm not going to cheer you up in closing. Um, Ellen is moving away. <laughs> This will have absolutely no this impact. This will have no effect on you. On you as listeners because it will the sound like will, we're sitting in the same room. The show will continue because we get a lot of enjoyment out of it and apparently so do a lot of people. But Ellen has decided with her family to move to Hobart. I have, Jess. <laughs> Jess is looking at me right now like... And... um. I'm devastated, obviously, but I'm glad we have this show to help us both navigate this time. Um, so th- this is the last episode of us t- in the same sitting room. together in the same room. We'll just be sitting together in different rooms connected by the Skype interface. Um, so, yeah, it's I'm going to make it this about me because that's on brand. <laughs> um, this is possibly one of the most devastating things that's ever happened to me. I am in so much pain about this because as well as doing this show with Ellen for the past couple of months, I've had literally the worst year of my life and I would not have gotten through this without her being in close proximity and being (laughs) at the other end of the phone or available to go out drinking with me. Um, So thankfully we have this show to do together even though we're going to be apart and it's honestly the most heartbreaking thing and I'm happy that we have this together exactly we may be separated by distance but we will always be connected by our love of brutal (laughs) crime um we'll always have murder to bring us together and you dear listeners yeah um so come journey on us with us on this time I don't I can't I can't I can't even talk I'm but the show's continuing, so that's fine. And, um, yeah, I'm really upset about it. <laughs> I'm upset too. I'm just not currently crying. <laughs> but I just want to say that I am implicitly aware of the amazing effect that Ellen has had on my life, not only in the 12 years that – as well as the 12 years that we've been best friends, but on 2018, which has been the fucking worst – and I've come out on the end of it. I'm fine now. No, I'm I'm not fine. I'm in the process. But Ellen has been amazing. And I cannot believe I have to go through the next however long without her. Look, she could hate Hobart and she could come back, okay? And I'm holding to that faith. Or I'm going to lose my mind and I move to Hobart. I don't know. It just means that I'll be able to research our Tasmanian cases like really in depth. <sighs> I might go like serial style and interview some people. But yeah, so this is our last episode recording together in the pod loft. It's sad. Uh-huh. But we're going to be ushering a new era of murder in the land of Oz. Yep. <laughs> so thank you for being part of this journey. If we cry more frequently, well, that's just what happens. You just have to deal. I don't care. <laughs> so um, 
make sure you're subscribed <laughs> and make sure you're rating and reviewing and make sure you can go on Patreon and support us because Jess and Ellen go on a crime con. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Because we've already talked about in New Orleans we're going to get tattoos. Not with like Patreon Not crime money. related ones, but we want to get them together and we want to get them done in New Orleans. So if you want to support us on that journey, you can support us on Patreon. You can follow us on Instagram. Send us a message and tell us how pathetic we are. Yeah, we really like hearing that. We really <laughs> like, like we really like people being like, mm, I wanted to like this show, but these girls just really cry a lot. <laughs> we know. So yeah, thank you. Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>